What if you were better equipped to beat your best in any situation life throws at you? What if you were able to realize game-changing breakthroughs and achieve your goals fearlessly and without restriction? My mission is to help you level up your mindset to achieve peak performance so you can accomplish the most audacious goals you have in life and in business while embracing the highs and lows of every journey. To do that, I'm going to explore topics that challenge how you think and help explain why you show up in the world the way you do. By accepting the challenge, you'll think better, you'll feel better, you'll perform better every day. I'm your host, Dr. Ed Slover, mindset and peak performance coach, business consultant, thought leader, author, and award-winning educator. And it's a good day to do great things. This is the Quest for Life podcast. Anyone that knows me knows that I'm a lover of words. I remember as a kid hearing the adage, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Now, like most children, I was impressionable and blindly accepted this as truth, but it didn't take long for me to discover that this sentiment is false. Words can and do hurt. I also remember my mom telling me that I hang on people's words more than most, even as a child. As I got older, I found that as my vocabulary and understanding of words expanded, I became more confident. Even today, the people in my life, namely my wife, find they must choose their words carefully because they know I'm keyed in on understanding their intended meaning through the words they use. I bring this up because at first glance, the difference between reacting and responding may be subtle because it, they appear to have the same meaning, or any distinction between the two is merely semantics. In fact, if you pull out a... Th th Anyone that knows me knows that I'm a lover of words. I remember as a kid hearing the adage, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Now, like most children, I was impressionable, and I blindly accepted this as truth. But it didn't take long for me to discover that this sentiment is false. Words can and do hurt. I also remember my mom telling me that I hang on people's words more than most, even as a child. As I got older, I found that as my vocabulary and understanding of words expanded, I became more confident. Even today, the people in my life, namely my wife, find they must choose their words carefully because they know I'm keyed in on understanding their intended meaning through the words they use. I bring this up because at first glance, the difference between reacting and responding is subtle. Sometimes people use them interchangeably because they appear to have the same meaning, and others view any distinction between the two as merely semantics. In fact, if you pull out a thesaurus, each word is likely a synonym for the other. In our lives, however, there's a significant difference between the two, particularly when you're faced with challenges and stressful situations. And being able to effectively manage this difference helps you level up your mindset to achieve peak performance. Let's get started. The Latin root of the word react is back to do perform. The implication here is that you're taking action back at someone or something in response to someone or something. The Latin root of the word respond is back answer. The implication here is that you're answering back to someone or something in response to someone or something.
The distinction here is subtle, but upon careful consideration, the lines begin to come into focus. First, taking back at someone or something, reacting, is driven by the amygdala. This is one of the most primitive parts of our brain. This is the part of our brain that's responsible for keeping us alive when we feel threatened. It drives our survival instincts. A number of years ago, my family and I took a trip to the northwest rim of the Grand Canyon, and there's this structure there called the Skywalk. The Skywalk is a U-shaped plexiglass structure that's about 2,500 vertical feet above the canyon floor, and we were excited to take this trip. Now, as I proceed out the door to make the loop, I got about 10 feet out, looked down, and my brain said, nope. And I proceeded to go back through the door I exited. My brain simply wouldn't allow me to partake of that experience. Meanwhile, my wife and youngest daughter decide to go out. They're having fun. They're looking over the edge. Heck, they even laid down on this thing. And what was funny is they kept trying to coax me to come out. And my brain was like, nope, nope, not happening. Interestingly, there are employees there that take photos. And we wanted to get a family photo. And the photographer is motioning me to come out further on the skywalk. And I'm motioning to him to come back closer to the door. And when you look at the photo, it actually looks like I'm out on the skywalk, but I'm only about a foot and a half away from the door. Meanwhile, I'm breaking the handrail of that I'm holding behind me, trying to make sure I don't fall, even though this structure is perfectly safe. My brain simply wouldn't allow me to do it. It was one of the most unique experiences I've ever had because my amygdala trumped my prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for executive function. This part of our brain allows us to think rationally. It allows us to do math. It allows us to solve complex problems and make decisions. But when we perceive a threat, our amygdala fires and triggers our fight or flight reaction, which increases our chances of effectively dealing with the threat or living another day. I use this example often of being on a hike and coming across a big cat. Right when you see the cat, your amygdala fires and triggers that fight or flight reaction because you know you're going to have to deal with the cat. You might have to fight the cat. Hopefully not. You have to find a way to flee from the cat in order to live another day. And that physical sensation, that feeling that you have in the moment is exactly what you should be feeling. But in modern times, most of us don't confront many physical threats like that. Most of us don't have to be concerned about being another animal's food. Most of us, at least by percentage, aren't victimized. But you find that your amygdala is working when you experience a psychological threat, which is much more common in modern times. And these take the form of a threat to your self-identity, your self-esteem, or the goals you have for your life. Thus, when you perceive a threat to how you perceive yourself, how you evaluate yourself, and or the impediments to achieving a fulfilling, successful life, your survival instincts kick in. And this shows up in the form of baggage, like the fear of failure, fear of not being accepted by others, fear of the unknown, perfectionism, the need for control, and the like. And how we react in those moments is, in effect, a knee-jerk reaction in the pursuit of survival. And in those moments, executive function goes out the window in exchange for an instinctive, visceral reaction. 
For example, let's say you and a coworker are vying for a promotion and you believe that that person isn't nearly as qualified as you, and yet they get promoted. Your reaction will very likely be one of hurt, disappointment, or even anger. You may even decide to blast your coworker, incite drama by involving other coworkers in your displeasure, or storm into your boss's office and give him or her a piece of your mind. Your reaction in that moment is at the someone or something that elicited emotions you're experiencing. Now, we have to remember how the brain works. Emotions are the chemical cocktail. They're the flood of neurochemicals in our brain that elicit a sensation, a physical feeling. So make note of the distinction between emotions and feelings. Emotions are brain chemistry. Feelings are the actual sensation that we have in our body. And so when that person gets promoted over us, we might feel anger, and that's how we describe it. But what triggered that physical sensation was this emotional neurochemical cocktail in our brain. Fortunately, you don't need to live in a perpetual state of, quote, reaction mode because you do have a prefrontal cortex. As previously mentioned, this is the, the area of the brain that's responsible for executive function, which allows us to plan, analyze, problem solve, assess cost and benefits, and to make reasonable measured decisions. The prefrontal cortex allows us to respond to, not at, but to someone or something by engaging in deliberate thinking, which guides our behavioral responses to situations in which we find ourselves. Let me mention, however, that this requires tremendous discipline in the moment because for most people, the amygdala fires first. This is that distinction with emotions and feelings. In the previous example of your coworker getting promoted instead of you, your amygdala exerts significant influence over your thinking, emotions, and behavior. The upside is that your prefrontal cortex can override your amygdala in most situations, provided that you become conscious of what's going on, which will allow you to respond more effectively and more appropriately. What follows are five practical ways you can level up your mindset and respond in a more emotionally mature manner in lieu of reacting in an automatized, often toxic way because of the trigger event. Number one. Notice the feelings as they arise. Now, this requires you to demonstrate a high degree of self-awareness moment to moment. In particular, you need to be able to identify the sensations, the feelings, and subsequent thoughts and urges that fuel intense reactions. For me, I've always been triggered by anything resembling disrespect or anyone that's being inconsiderate. My line is way extended from my chest. Some people, their lines really close to them and it allows them to be more emotionally vulnerable when it comes to disrespect. My line is at arm's length. I don't deal that, uh, that well with anything resembling disrespect. And what I've come to learn is that if I, if I understand and notice my feelings in the moment, what I'm able to do is effectively press pause. Because when we become aware of how we're feeling in the moment, we can press pause and begin to gather our thoughts. Now, it's important to note that how you're feeling in the moment is real and fair, but it may not be objectively real. 
For example, a couple summers ago, my wife was on a, a phone call with her supervisor and a coworker. Now, my wife is an extraordinarily well-intended person. But the project she was working on was just going so incredibly slow. She was getting impatient and she found she was overstepping into someone else's work. That person took offense to that and got her and her supervisor on the phone. And she comes down into the living room after the call and she felt defeated. She felt as though her supervisor now thought less of her. And I asked her if I could share my perspective, and she said yes. And I told her, I'm like, darling, your feelings at this moment are real and fair, but they're not likely objectively real because she believed that her supervisor thought less of her. I encouraged her to get him on the phone. They ended up chatting for 20 minutes, and she came down. She sat on my lap. She gave me a kiss, and she said, you know, you're, you're right. He didn't think less of her. But in the moment, we become prisoners of the moment. But, but we, it's important to acknowledge that our feelings are real and fair, but they may not be objectively real. But we need to notice them as they arise. Number two, pre-plan your responses to the extent you can pre-plan your responses. It's not revelatory in any way to assert that things won't always go your way. That said, if you're able to give deliberate thought ahead of an event and pre-plan how you'll try to respond if you get the short end of the stick, you're more likely to respond more effectively. If we go back to the previous example of your coworker getting promoted, you can actually pre-plan your responses ahead of the decision for the promotion. You can give thought to, what if I don't get the promotion? How am I going to respond in that moment? Will I feel angry? Will I feel hurt? Will I feel disappointed? What am I going to do with the information if I'm not promoted and, and this person who I believe I'm better than gets promoted over me? It allows you, in effect, to do a mental role play and give deliberate thought to how you think you might respond or how you'll try to respond in that moment. Number three, practicing compassion for others. The reality is that we have no idea, no real way of knowing for sure how other people are thinking from moment to moment. We don't know how they're feeling from moment to moment. Unfortunately, because the world makes us sick with experience, which invariably leads to developing a high degree of cynicism and jadedness, we tend to round down for others. And I get it. We get, we get burned from time to time. I've been burned by other people you know, on occasion throughout my life. But what if your default setting was to round up for others in the hope of better understanding what's going on with them? Now, what I'm not saying is that you should round up for people who, that are victimizing you. Anyone that is verbally or physically abusing you, absolutely do not round up for them. And regrettably, we live in a culture today where everyone is seemingly always offended and playing the role of victim. For those of us that are more mature, for those of us that aren't as easily offended and can discern the difference between being legitimately victimized and not, starting with compassion for others until they prove otherwise serves as a credible way to respond versus simply reacting. Number four, practice compassion for yourself. I find it fascinating that people are more willing to practice compassion for and extend grace to others than they are to themselves, especially after we react in ways that are either inappropriate, ineffective, or even hurtful.
As with rounding up and demonstrating empathy for others, you should round up and demonstrate empathy for yourself. How this shows up is when your inner dialogue is kind or at least neutral. For example, if you recognize that your reaction to someone or something is intense and then upon reflection wasn't appropriate, say to yourself, I'm feeling a lot right now, or I'm dealing with a lot right now, or this is a lot to deal with and it's hard for me right now. The goal here is to disrupt the neurochemical groove that's been cut and allow your prefrontal cortex to gain a foothold in the situation. Another way of saying this is that using kinder or more neutral language gives you a shot at breaking the negative cycle of reacting so you can respond in a reasonable, measured way. Number five, connect to what's important to you. When you're in full reaction mode, when your amygdala is firing, it provides you extremely valuable information because it informs you about what you care about, what's most important to you. For example, if your significant other lashes out after he or she's had a bad day, your typical reaction may be to come out guns blazing and fight back. And why do you do that? Well, there are many potential reasons, but one one is, seems obvious because you're, what you're experiencing in the moment is disconnection, which is to say that you feel disconnected from them. You feel as though you're experiencing a form of injustice because they didn't have to treat you that way and hurt your feelings. And in your reaction, we actually make the disconnection worse, which creates a negative feedback loop. And why is this valuable information? Because you don't want to feel that way in the first place. You don't want the disconnection. You never wanted the disconnection. What you want is connection because it sucks when we feel disconnected from the people we care about the most. Fortunately, there's a better way as you, through deliberate practice of the previous four ways to level up your mindset, can anticipate your reactions in exchange for better responses. Make no mistake, all of this is crazy hard. It's extraordinarily difficult to make a conscious decision to value the integrity of any relationship more than simply reacting instinctively. Remember, your amygdala is designed to keep you alive based on a real or perceived threat. It keeps you alive either by being in opposition to a perceived threat, that's the fight response, or by avoiding or retreating from a perceived threat, that's the flight response. Conversely, your prefrontal cortex allows you to take into consideration the desired outcome of a situation, which in most cases is effectively managing the relationship so that you can maintain the integrity of that relationship. All of this speaks to the tenets of developing and demonstrating a high degree of emotional intelligence. And if you know how to do this well, you know that it requires a high degree of self-awareness, high degree of social awareness, that's empathy, self-management, that's regulating ourselves, and relationship management. This is the social skill part of this. Interestingly, when most people look at these four areas, they view them as a linear progression from self-awareness to relationship management. My contention is that we should work backwards. Think about it this way. If we do work these backwards, and if we maintain the integrity of the relationship, if the integrity of the relationship is the focal point, and this is the relationship management piece, if we maintain the integrity of the relationship, 
and keep that top of mind, it can influence how we regulate ourselves in the moment. That's self-management. It might even allow us to be more empathetic to the person that we are engaged with, even if we disagree with how they're feeling in the moment, even if we don't care about how they're feeling in the moment, because we have a heightened degree of self-awareness. But immaterial of how any of this content is envisioned, the application of the principles and concept discussed is key. And when you evolve from merely reacting to consciously responding, every one of your relationships will improve because you've taken the time and energy to level up your mindset. As we wrap up another episode of the Quest for Life podcast, I encourage you to download the show notes at thequestforlife.com. That's thequest4life.com. And give some thought to how you can incorporate each of the proposed ways to level up your mindset to respond more effectively versus reacting instinctively. From there, answer several questions. Number one, can I put words to the physical sensations, the feelings I'm experiencing in a stressful situation before I react? Number two, what would it look like if I pre-plan my responses to situations that don't go my way? If you refer back to the coworker getting promoted, what would it look like if you pre-planned your responses to a situation like that? Number three, am I willing to show compassion to others with the understanding that I'm likely unaware of what's going on in their life to make them show up the way they are in a given moment? Number four, am I willing to show compassion to myself when reacting inappropriately and getting situations wrong? Lastly, what will I do with the information stemming from my reactions to respond more effectively in the future? Answers to these questions and the application of the principles and concepts discussed will make every area of your life better, and there's no downside to that. As usual, it's food for thought, fellow questers. Be sure to follow or subscribe to the show and pass it on to a friend. You can download the show notes at thequestforlife.com. That's the quest number for life.com. You can also connect with me if you're interested in learning more about leveling up your mindset to achieve peak performance in all areas of your life. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for joining the conversation.